0: Um, well, this morning we're going to be continuing in Acts. And last week, if you were here last week, we actually took a break, and a uh, pastor from another church, Jonathan Brooks, came. Uh, he's one of the um, church planters that was sent out from here some years ago, and he came to encourage us, and I was encouraged on the awe of God. And uh, so we just took a quick break. But this week we're actually getting back into the book of Acts and this uh, This week we're in Chapter sixteen, so go ahead and turn there if you need to uh, get your bearings. But um, just to review a little bit for you in last week, what we or two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 15, and we saw that it was a monumental chapter in the New Testament, a monumental chapter in the latter New Testament, and certainly even in Acts that. Acts 15, we saw, was sort of the center of the book of Acts theologically. Uh, The decisive judgment was made that, yes, salvation goes to both Jews and Gentiles, that's Jews and non-Jews, on the basis of faith. Uh, It's a gift of God, and it can't be done by the works of the law, which is a complicated way of saying by human effort um, for us Gentiles. And so so that was the decisive judgment that was made in the church. God saves people, and when He saves people, He does it apart from anything that they do. It's His activity. He gets the glory. He does the work. And after that, decisive judgment was made. Then we see uh, Paul and Barnabas actually get into an argument. They they went on the first missionary journey of the church in history, and they get into an argument about whether or not to take a certain guy with him because he kind of tapped out on the first trip. And uh, so they split, and 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 now Paul is going to go off in one direction and Barnabas in another, and the story focuses just following Paul. And he takes Silas with him. And that's Acts chapter 16. And as he goes off on his now second missionary journey in the world, he will eventually come to a city called Philippi. And uh, Philippi is a, a very noteworthy place in the scriptures. That's because Paul gets his best friends out of this chapter. So the rest of the Bible... If you want to read it, the rest of church history, uh, the rest of Paul's life, he will get the best friends of his life out of this chapter of the Bible. And um, this is kind of unexpected because it's a Roman city. And uh, doing a little work on, on, uh, on Philippi, there's lots of interesting stuff. But one of the things is that anybody in the area... Uh, would normally consider themselves from a certain town. Like you'd consider yourself from Magnolia if you live in Magnolia. Or if you're old Magnolia, say, no, we're actually old Magnolians. We were here first before you knew people. Uh, or if you're from the woodlands, then you would say that. People say where they are geographically, not so with the Philippians. They don't say we are the Philippians. We don't, we're the Macedonians. We're a part of this greater province of Rome, the Macedonian province. They don't say that. They were known... By being Romans. Their national allegiance was immense. So when people knew about Philippi, it was because they knew about Rome. And uh, most commentators agree that Philippi was really like a, a mini Rome. So if you wanted to go to the Roman capital, then that'd be great. But if you couldn't make it, Philippi was the next best place. It was a place where you would see all of the facets of Roman culture at work. And it was a heavy heavy Gentile area. Not too many Jews there. And so Paul goes here, and the friends that he makes are not Jewish friends. They're, they're Roman friends. Um, so he gets these friends that are kind of unexpected by doing the Lord's work and missions. And I couldn't help but thinking about some of my own experiences uh, having friends. And one particular one stood out in mind for me, which is uh, when I moved to Bryant College Station. No, whoops. Okay. Um, but uh, I actually didn't go to a and sad, I know. Uh, I went to Blinn, and uh, it was kind of the first venture out of home, and so I moved up there. And as I went there, um, I, I had some uh, uh, not great roommates the first time, but the next, the second year, I ended up having fantastic roommates. And uh, it was really something that I prayed for, for a long time, moving away, kind of venturing out on your own, that first, the first uh, really exciting time when you get away from home, and I was praying for good gospel friendships, and uh, eventually God gave them to me in the form of what is now known as the Brian House, or maybe what was then known as the Brian House, and um, uh, there were six of us, and I was one of them, and one of them was actually Josh Owen, who was sent out years ago to go to church playing in San Marcos, and um, the, uh, that house and all of us became legendary. And I, I don't mean to just uh, fluff it up, but, I mean, we were known. Like, we were known in our church. We were known in the city, in the cities, Bryan College Station. And I remember um, it, it wasn't really because of anything about us, but we had a high view of Scripture. We had a high view of, of Jesus. We were engaged in our community. We were doing all sorts of stuff. And so I would go places. I remember walking on the camp, the uh, uh, campus of Texas A&M and running into someone starting to talk with them. And then they said, oh, you're one of the Brian House guys. And I said, yes, I am. That's right. Uh, and, and it was because our friendship was so deep. It was, it was so well connected and it was centered on the gospel. And uh, I eventually tried using that some other places and it didn't work out too well. Uh, I, I began introducing myself as one of the Brian House guys and people would be like, okay, I don't know what that means. But um, it, And so I realized it wasn't quite as awesome as I had thought it was sometimes, but, but it was a, a place where I just, I, I had these immense, immensely deep friendships and they impacted my life so much I wouldn't tell everybody about them. Same sort of thing is happening here in Acts chapter 16 with Paul. We'll just jump forward a little bit chronologically and look at Philippians 1. So Paul will write these people that we see in the text today, a letter, uh, Philippians, and he says this kind of stuff about them. In verse 3, Philippians 1, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul says that whenever he thinks about them, these Philippians, that he thanks God for them. And he does that all the time. And not only that, but when he's thinking about them and thanking God for them, which happens consequently all the time, he does that for all of them, he says, and that gives him joy, which also gets him thinking about them again. And he thanks God for them. And so he's just like, he's, he's communicated that he thinks about them nonstop, nonstop. He loves them. Why? In verse 5, he says, Because of your your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The thing that was the basis of this friendship with Paul in the Philippians was the gospel. In those times, to be a a Christian, Christianity hadn't advanced that far yet. And so to be a Christian uh, was kind of a new thing. But what people knew initially was that you're saying somebody else is Lord other than Caesar. And so to be a partner with Paul in his gospel ministry is to say publicly, Caesar's not my Lord. I don't worship him. I serve a different king. And that isolated them. It wasn't outlawed at this point. Christianity wasn't. But it was certainly undesirable. And Paul says, nobody, nobody was partners with me in gospel ministry like you guys. You were willing to accept the same sort of status I was. You joined with me in the ministry effort. And then in verse 7, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And Paul says that when he thinks about them, he, he feels a certain way. And it's because they're in his heart. I mean, how much more emotional can you get talking about this sort of thing? Uh, he, he says that he, he feels, feels something for them. And you all know this experience when you're talking with an acquaintance uh, or maybe someone you don't really know yet, but you find out there's somebody in common that you know, as soon as you mention their name, what happens? you see a total different expression on their face. They say, oh, I love that guy. It's because there is a familiarity, there's a friendship there behind even whoever that person is that you're talking, you don't know them at all, but you know somebody else that they love and they trust. And when they hear their name, warmth, affection comes to them. It's the same thing with Paul, whenever he thinks about them, and he gets it a little bit more embarrassing after this. In verse 8, he says, for, my, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He will say, basically, he almost starts swearing, he says, I just, I, I love you so much, God is my witness about this. Like, I'm serious. I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. When he says affection, he uses a word in Greek that means intestines. It means bowels, which we hear that, we're like, oh, that's kind of gross. But for them, that was the seat of the emotion. You can't get any deeper in feeling something than the bowels for the Greeks. And, and and so Paul says, I feel that like when I hear your name, when someone talks about you, when I listen to you, when I think of you, I feel something deeply inside of me for you. It's affection. It's the affection of Christ. And as he says that, we might say, when we see something that really impacts us, watch a video or read a story, something that's very emotionally engaging, we might say it hit me right in the feels. That's what Paul is saying. He says, when he even thinks about them, immediately, he says, oh, I love those guys. This is an incredible kind of friendship. And certainly as I was going over, it, I have to ask myself, man, do do I have friends like this? I believe God's given them to me, certainly. But do you have friends like this? We need friends like this. I mean, who doesn't want friends like this? And in the uh, in the spirit of uh, sermon in a couple weeks, I'll give you a quote from Socrates on friendship, as we'll see uh, see Athens here in a couple weeks. But Socrates said this about friendship. He said, "I have a passion for friends, and I would rather have a good friend than the best horse or dog." Amen. Amen. Uh, Some people, I'm sure, don't actually believe that they would rather have pets than friends, or pets for friends, but. Um, Still, this is the sort of spirit that we have here, that friends are incredibly important. And in Acts chapter 16, we see uh, that there's a certain kind of friendship that is the best. And so that's the main point for the day, is this, that gospel, the gospel makes the best friendships everyone wants. That's the main point. The gospel makes the best friendships everyone wants. I want them, you want them, everybody does, but they only happen in the gospel. And so three things we can see out of this passage. The first is gospel friendships come from God. Let's start reading in Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysa, they attempted to go into Bithynia. A lot of cities. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysa, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So what happens here? After after beginning their journey, the missionary journey, Paul says, you know what? I have this Awesome idea. Let's go into Asia to tell people about Jesus because no one has heard about Jesus up there. So they go. He picks up Timothy with him on the way. And then as we see, uh, they they try to go, but they're prevented by the Holy Spirit. This is very strange. Very strange. Why would the Holy Spirit prevent gospel ministry from going forward? We don't necessarily get the answer here, but we do see some answer. Uh, So Paul says, you know what? I'm going to go somewhere else. So they try to go somewhere else on their missionary trip and that doesn't work the spirit shows up and says no you're not supposed to go here yet don't go here it's very strange but as they do that they come to troas and then we see the pronouns shift from they and he to we and us luke has just joined the party so whatever's happening God thought it was important enough for Luke to be able to join the party to go on this next adventure. So they meet up with Luke in Troas, who writes this, this account. And as they do that, then Paul gets a vision the Macedonian call. Now, in ministry, a lot of people look at this and they say, That's what I need. If I, if I need to know where to move, what school to go to, whatever, I need a Macedonian call. Something clearly God says, Go here and do this. doesn't happen often, but it happens here after being blocked by the Holy Spirit twice. So Paul takes it, he says, that's it, we're going. And then they go to Macedonia. And as they go to Macedonia, something happens. They end up stepping right into God's plan. And and that's really the first point here, that gospel friendships as they come about, as we'll see, come from God. All this directing, this bouncing around, trying to go to Asia, trying to go to different places, Bithynia, God is the one who's orchestrating everything. He's the one directing Paul and his companions. God is the one at work. Another way we see this is in the next section. So let's read that. In verse 11, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and sat down and spoke to the women who had hurt, who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household with her, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they finally get to Macedonia and they finally get to Philippi. And if I were Paul, I'd be looking everywhere for this man that I saw in a vision. This This is the reason they're there. God said, there's somebody here. There's a man who says we need help. So he starts looking, and who does he find? No man. His, his normal MO is to go into a city, go to the synagogue, tell the Jews the gospel, and then they reject him, and then he'll go to the Gentiles. There's no synagogue here, most likely. So what does he do? He goes for the next best thing. He goes to a place of prayer. And he, he, he has no problem with this. He says, there's, there's no men here. There's women. So let's see what God is doing. And then he sees that these women are praying. They believe somehow in God, but not accurately. And then he says, you know what? I know what you need. I know the gospel. This is the good news. He starts teaching. And then we see this about Lydia that she's saved. And these incredible words, some of my favorite in the New Testament, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. This is incredible. Lydia is not the one making the choice here. Paul's not the one making the choice here. Paul has a gospel. He's come from God for God's mission, but he's not the one doing the work. He's sharing the gospel, but the only way Lydia believes is what? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. It would not happen otherwise. And this is a theme that we've seen in Acts up to this point in all different ways. In Acts 2.39, we see that uh, it says that in terms of salvation, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself are the people that are saved. In Acts 2.47, that is the Lord who added their number day by day. In Acts 13.48, we see that it was only those who were appointed to eternal life that believed. They were appointed. They didn't decide. God decided. In Acts 15.9 these new Gentiles are saved how? By having cleansed their hearts by faith. God did that. And then later on, while even Paul gets discouraged in ministry and is about to give up, then Jesus comes to him, stands before him, and what does he say as the encouragement to him to persevere? But this, I have many in this city who are my people. They don't even know him yet. They don't even know, they haven't even heard the gospel. But this is what God is doing. God is the one who's at work. Gospel friendships come from God. He's the one who's doing everything. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. It's an incredible thing, and this is great encouragement for us. If this were not the case, then I would say, uh, whether in terms of salvation, you know, conversion, or creating friendship and friendships and gospel community. There's an immense amount of pressure on you and on me. Like we have to manufacture how this relationship works in the church. That's not the case. God is the one who is at work. He is the one who creates these communities. He's the one who creates these friendships They come from him. I remember as a, as a child, uh, it's a little bit of a sob story here, but uh, I was actually a pretty lonely child. I didn't have many friends, even though I had a, a pretty good size family. Uh, I was just lonely. I found myself lonely all the time. And um, uh, for whatever reason, didn't have good friends, didn't make good friends. And so I remember probably in third grade, my mom sitting down with me, sitting on a bench in our house and just asking me if I wanted friends. And I said, yeah, I want friends. (laughs) Like who doesn't want friends? Um, And she said, well, let's pray about it. And so we, we started praying. We prayed for years. God, that one day would you bring in some people into John's life, that he would have really deep friendships. Uh, And and years later, in high school, after becoming a Christian, certainly God has answered that prayer many times over. Why is that important? It's because God gives gospel friendships. He's the one that does it. Because he's the one that does it, we should go to him and we should pray. Because he's the one doing it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything It's because he has the power. We should go to him and say, God, give me some good friends. I'm lonely. I'm tired of trying to manufacture relationships. Would you help me? The gospel makes the best friendships because the only way that we can get them is that God gives them. Now, that's not to say that we don't have anything to do in them. And that's the second point. The gospel friendships involve intentionality. You see, God's the one who's building, creating, doing the friendships, putting them together. But that doesn't mean we don't have anything to do. We have a lot to do. And we see this in the next section here. In verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, Luke writes, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God. And proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So, what's happening here? Another strange situation. First, the Holy Spirit comes and is blocking them from going to share the gospel. And now we see that this demon possessed slave girl is following them around for days, crying out that they're actually servants of the Most High God. This is very strange. And uh, it's really hard for us to know. It could be that Paul's annoyed because he, th- she's saying, like, they serve the Most High God in a mocking sort of way. Like, yeah, they kind of do. Or she's saying it's just a God, in which case it's not really theologically true. It's like, no, there's only one God. His name is Jesus and, and so these men uh, who, who are um, servants of the Most High God could be a, a way of just saying that they are um, not really legitimate. Who, who knows? We don't know. Regardless of the way it was coming across, Paul says, uh, Luke says about Paul, he's greatly annoyed. And I can just imagine Luke sitting with Paul, watching Paul like, oh, there's something not right about this, something not quite right. And Luke really highlights it for us by saying that she... She had a spirit of divination. And in Greek, it's a, it is a panuma pythona, which means snake spirit. So Luke says, like, this is not right. This is, something's wrong here. This girl has a snake spirit. And nobody really in their right mind likes snakes, at least in my opinion. And, and, so, and Luke's opinion too, apparently. And, um, and so she, she obviously is not, not right. There's something spiritually very wrong about this. And as that's happening, in the midst of that happening, we see that Paul starts off, uh, Luke starts off with this phrase, as we were going. That as they're doing this, day in and day out, they're going to the place of prayer. They're listening to the scriptures being taught, how Jesus is the Messiah. They're doing all of this together in community. What's happening here is they are joined in daily devotion to God. This new community, this is what's happening. They're joined in daily devotion to God. And as that happens, issues rise up like this snake girl. And, and what do they do about it? They have to be honest about it eventually. Paul has to engage. It would not have been right for Paul to just say, I'm, I'm going to ignore this. Nothing's happening. This girl's in bondage. She needs help. She's being abused and used by her owners. It's not right. And so as a part of this community. What does he do? He jumps in and he says the honest thing. This is not right. It's not of God. So he drives the spirit out in Jesus name. And, and then something rough happens to them. They have to take a lot of heat for it. And before we get to that, I think it's instructive for us here that you may not need to drive out a snake spirit from somebody, but in community, like Paul is here walking from place to place, day to day, going to worship, going to pray, going to teach the scriptures, going to be in community, things are going to come up that aren't quite right, that you see in other people's lives, maybe in your own life, and you have to be honest about that. You have to be. And Paul is willing to be honest. And he takes the heat for it. So let's read in verse 19 what happens. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. I won't read the rest of this, but what happens is uh, they get thrown before the rulers and they, they get abused. They get beaten. They get the clothes stripped off of them. They get beaten with rods. They get thrown into jail all by the civil authorities. Why? It's because what they did was change a young girl's life. This young girl undoubtedly was wrapped up into some serious darkness. And Paul said, I'm not going to leave it that way. I will engage. I will, I will be honest. The gospel commands me to do so. And we don't necessarily know whether or not she became a Christian. There's a good argument for that with Luke placing her story in the midst of the three. But regardless, Paul's willing to engage in the community around him. And certainly that girl's life. And they take the heat for it. And I've seen this in my own own life. I know you've probably seen it in yours. That if you're honest, if you're willing to be honest and step into people's lives and say things that they otherwise wouldn't hear, but they need to hear. You may get heat. You may get heat for it. It may not be pleasant. Sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes God unites those friendships greater. And sometimes he shows you that, that they start to break apart because they're not founded on the gospel. This is happening all the time, and God's the one who's doing it. And so just for us, I'd have to say that, ask us this question, that are you, are you in a community group? Because this is where it happens. It doesn't really happen on Sunday mornings too well, but in our church, in community groups, this is where this sort of life happens, where you're around other people, they can see your life, you can see their life, and encouragement happens, but honesty happens. We need this. We need this kind of life. And God gives it to us in gospel friendships. So we have to realize that God gives us these friendships. They come from him. Not only that, but they take a lot of intentionality. Paul's not just sitting on the sidelines. sidelines. He says, I'm going to daily go to worship with other people. And I'm going to be honest with them. It takes great intentionality. Not only that, third and last, we see the gospel friendships are forged through affliction. So Paul and Barnabas are in prison. And in verse 25, we read this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. It's so easy to read the Bible and just say like, well, that's cool. But you start to think about it and you're like, wait a second, that's not me. I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't be doing that. I would I would be in the bottom of that jail cell. And he says that he throws them into the inner prison. That means like the bottom of the dungeon. This is reserved for the lowest of the low, the greatest criminals. I would probably be there in this situation as I thought about it doing one of two things. I'd either have, be having a huge pity party, right? Just saying like, oh, my back's so sore or whatever. And if that wasn't the case, then I would probably be plotting my revenge. You know, I mean, seriously. And as, as we'll see, this was a huge injustice because they're Roman citizens. It shouldn't have been done. It was a wrong. Civilly, it was a wrong. So I would probably be doing one of those two things, but what do we see? They are there at midnight singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them it's incredible and and the the truth i think for me and for us as a church is great that if when we experience suffering and hardship we can turn to God and worship that we don't get critical or bitter but we begin to sing god you're in control you know what you're doing you've moved this from Bithynia, from Asia, from all these other places to this moment, you know exactly what I'm experiencing. You know exactly the hurt, the pain that I have in my life, even the unjust pain. God, you know it. And what is he doing in that moment? He's preparing them. He's preparing them to share the gospel. And so we read this in verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And then he brings them up to their house and there's rejoicing. Here he is. If you've been waiting for it, this is the moment. I'm sure Paul was waiting for it, praying, seeking God. Where's that man? He saw in his vision. The jailer is the man. He's there and he's not even crying out for help at first. But then what does he do? earthquake happens spiritually, shaking the prison. and, And here he comes in, the jailer. Lord, help me. Things are set just at the right moment from God. And Paul says, I'll tell you what you need to do to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And this is incredible. Any other world religion, if you've looked at any other world religion, it's incredibly complicated. Incredibly complicated and always works-based. Christianity, the gospel, not so. At the very simplest, this is it. Paul tells him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. No climbing any sort of spiritual ladder. No doing of any works. This is it. Believe. That's what you have to do. And if you haven't heard that before this morning, then I encourage you like the jailer, just believe. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus. But for the jailer, he also knew something. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That this is the Lord this is the king. The call for him is to say, Caesar's no longer your king. If you want to follow Jesus, he is your king. He is your Lord. He's the one that you follow now. He's the one that you live for. And his response is absolutely. Absolutely. And so we see that for, whether it's Paul or Silas, and Silas and Paul, them encouraging each other, or them and the Philippian jailer, what's happening is, is they are having a friendship forged together that will last for the years and hundreds of miles, as happens in Philippians. And I couldn't help but think of Proverbs 17, 17. It's a good one for you to memorize if you haven't. But a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That this is the point. in their lowest point here in the jail cell, what did they have? They have friendship with one another. They have friendship with God and that gives them hope. And then as the jailers introduced to that, it gives them joy. So they have immense joy. And this is what leads to them end up getting out that as, as they uh, get out of there, then the magistrates come and I won't read that portion for you, but they, they come and they say, kick them out of the city. And then they say, we're actually Roman citizens and they're terrified because now they're actually uh, under the law and they're able to get punished. But Paul doesn't take advantage of that. He doesn't do it. Instead, they just do one final thing. They go back to the community in Lydia's house. They go back to Lydia's house to talk with the brothers and sisters and encourage them. And in verse 39, it says that they apologized as the rulers. And in verse 40, that they went out. From the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They encouraged them and departed. Before leaving the city, Paul and company just had to go back to these believers to encourage them because they had new and fast friendships that were created by God. The point here is that God builds these friendships. They take our intentionality, but they also are forged by him through affliction. And this is something that happens all throughout life. Uh, and I think just with everything going on in the past couple of weeks, that there have been a number of losses in our church, in our community. A number of people have died. And with that happening, what is God doing In the midst of the affliction, he's forging new friendships. He's making them stronger. He's making us rely on each other more. And it's easy for us, I think, to see this and to say, well, that's fantastic. I would love to have friends like that. I would love to have those kind of friends where you have the same life goals, you have the same community, you have so much in common. But that is not necessarily Luke's point here. If you notice, all three of these people are from completely different backgrounds. There's the uh, the lady Lydia, who is a wealthy, independent, probably widowed or single woman who's religious. She's in one part of society, and then you have this demon-possessed girl with a history of abuse, and then you have this Philippian jailer who, really, at the end of it, I think he just wants to do his job. You know, it's like, all right, some more prisoners, and he has grown numb to. Seeing people suffer, you could not put these three people in a room anywhere, except I had uh, one uh, pastor friend who, uh, looking over this, I agree. There's probably one. There's probably only one area of our society these three people would come together in, and that's the DMV. Otherwise, it would not happen. It would totally not happen. They only are brought together by Jesus, and so when we see this story. In these examples, we don't see people who are bound together by affinity. It's not that they have the same likes, that they have the same recreation, that they work out together, or they have the same um, political beliefs or socioeconomic background. None of those things are true of these people. And these are the very people that Paul will count as his best friends. And not only that, they couldn't be his best friends without being best friends with one another. So we see that the gospel is really what brings these people together. They don't have anything in common. They probably have most things not in common. You would normally see probably Lydia looking down on this slave girl, or you probably see the Philippian Jew, um, jailer really uh, as somebody who is undesirable to both of them that they may look at in fear or scorn. That's not the kind of community That happens here, though. Jesus brings them all together. And so, for us, and for me, as I was thinking about it, you know, it's not really about my life stage, my age group. Those are not the criteria that we should have in mind when we're seeking friends. And I think Luke's point is this to put all three of those people together to say this that we should seek the friendships with who God has put around us. That's really what Luke is saying. As he records this and gives it to the early church, we're not the first people to read this story. This was originally for people Luke was writing to in the ancient world and past that. And the point is it doesn't really matter. Your your affinity groups, they don't matter. They're okay. But the gospel is the center. And if you have that, anybody can come together. People from any background, And we need this. We need this in our church. We need this in our life so that we don't start to separate out our communities and think, well, they're not in the same age bracket I am, or they don't have the same likes I do, or they drive a different kind of car, or they listen to different kind of music. Those are not the things Paul is highlighting here or Luke is highlighting, and he could have. You see, for us and all the things that are happening in our church, certainly I see God is, pulling us together in a unique kind of way. He's the one behind it. He calls for our involvement in it. And besides that, it takes some affliction. And as that happened, God binds us together. Whether it's this local church, any church, your personal friendships outside of this church, this is how it happens. And if all this is just way too much for you, you say, you know what, that's just way too much community, I'm not willing to put myself forward for whatever reason I've been hurt before, or it's just like, it's it's really cultish. I don't think so. Then I just encourage you to start where Paul started, where the Philippians here started and everyone else, that Jesus is your friend. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Though, if this is too overwhelming for you and you say, I just can't open up my heart to that, my life to that. See Jesus. Jesus coming from heaven, dying on the cross for you, rising for your justification, joining you in your loneliness. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And if you know him and believe him, then he ushers you into this community where all of a sudden you're not by yourself, but you can have the best friends of your life. Let's pray.